At once, on a word of command, they all pulled their oars together, struck the deep sea water, and made it roar. And then suddenly, they were all there in plain sight. First there was the right wing, leading the way with good order and discipline, and then the whole fleet coming on behind. And from all of them together, one could hear a great cry. Come on, sons of the Greeks, for the freedom of your homeland, for the freedom of your children, your wives, the temples of your father's gods, and the tombs of your ancestors. Now all is at stake. Aeschylus Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 24, The Battle of Salamis. In late September, the Greeks were on the eve of another battle against Xerxes' Persian Empire. At Marathon ten years earlier, they were able to prevent the Persians securing a foothold in Attica. Just seven days ago, at Thermopylae, they were able to put a halt to Xerxes' march for a week, but the defenders were eventually wiped out. At Artemisium, around the same time as Thermopylae, a series of naval actions saw the Greeks gaining tactical victories. Though the losses that the Greeks were taking could not be sustained, and the only sensible course of action was to fall back. The withdrawal of the Greeks now saw just about everything north of the Peloponnese undefended. Any village or polis that wouldn't submit to the Persians was raised with its inhabitants fleeing or killed defending their livelihood. Those who did submit joined the campaign on the Persian side, with them either providing territory, supplies, men or ships for the war effort. The Acropolis at Athens now lay in ruins with the embers still smouldering, but the polis of Athens now rested on some nearly 200 triremes and the citizens that crewed them. Making a stand at Salamis would see a chance that their home soil wouldn't be lost forever. Could the Greek force survive another encounter with Xerxes' forces? If not, it seemed likely that not only would the Athenians be looking for a new homeland, but the Peloponnesians were likely to have the Persians marching through their lands. A lot was at stake for the Greeks, but their unity on the eve of Salamis wouldn't have inspired much confidence in those aware of what was at risk. If though, somehow, they could become united in their cause, Hellas would stand a better chance from becoming part of the Persian Empire. As we saw last episode, Xerxes wanted to engage the Greeks at sea and defeat them once and for all. Perhaps under his watchful eye, his fleet would be able to achieve this goal this time around. All of his commanders had pledged their support for an action at sea, knowing full well that's what he wanted. All except for one, Queen Artemisia, providing a voice of warning, almost as she had the benefit of hindsight. As one can see from Herodotus' account, he was quite enamoured with her, being the queen of his hometown. It was now the afternoon of the 24th of September, 480 BC, and Xerxes ordered that his fleet sail out and wait just outside the Straits of Salamis. All of the contingents manned their ships and made their way out into the open water outside the Straits. There was no rush in getting into position, the manoeuvre conducted by hundreds of triremes was very orderly, and even described as leisurely. The hundreds of triremes eventually formed up in their battle lines, which would have been many ranks deep. The sight from the Greek shore would have been one of a horizon filled with ships, maybe even given the impression the fleet was even bigger than it actually was. It would seem here that Xerxes' intention was not to fight a battle on this day, as his order was to deploy in the afternoon. There would have not been enough light left for a full-scale battle to develop. One would think that Xerxes would want to ensure he engaged in a battle that proved decisive. The Greeks had shown at Artemisium that a late afternoon skirmish worked in their favour, as there was enough time for one organised manoeuvre before both sides would head back to the safety of their shores. 
A more prolonged battle would run the risk of the Greeks being overwhelmed by superior Persian numbers, particularly once the Greek ranks were more disorganised after their initial action. Xerxes would want more time for the battle to develop, allowing more of his fleet a chance to engage and prove decisive over the smaller Greek fleet. It seems his attention here was one of psychological warfare. As we have seen throughout his campaign, and the one that Darius sent ten years earlier, there was no short supply of people willing to turn traitor, or cities willing to submit. For here, even at Salamis, there were nearly as many Greeks fighting on the side of the Persian Empire as there were opposed to the invasion. It must have been almost certain that Xerxes was aware of the troubles of cooperation in the Greek camp, and morale hanging by a thread. Perhaps this show of force would tip the Greeks over the edge. Once they could see what they would be sailing out to face, the desired deserters would emerge that would undermine the Greek fleet. This show of force could also break the morale in the Greek camp, with the current decision to fight at Salamis not being popular with most of the Peloponnesian commanders. If so, the Greek force might disintegrate, sailing off to their home ports or new lands. As we will see, this potential outcome, although in the Persians' favour, was not the desired result. Xerxes was after a decisive victory. Back on Salamis, the Greeks were viewing the spectacle Xerxes had arranged for them to witness and contemplate. Once again, the reality of what was before them saw the beginnings of the god Pan invoking his divine presence among the Greeks. Pan being the god that was known for stirring up panic within armies, and where we get our word panic from. The same had happened at the pass at Tempe, where the Greeks withdrew back to Corinth. At Thermopylae, some of the Greek contingents became very nervous at the size of the force advancing on them, but Leonidas was able to prevent a retreat. And at Artemisium, after the third day of storms, the sight of the fleet larger than they expected had caused calls for withdrawal, only prevented due to some bribery taking place behind closed doors. The same fleet was now in the same position. The Peloponnesians thought that they would be in great danger of being blockaded on Salamis, while Xerxes' army marched on their lands. It now seemed mere bribery between commanders wasn't going to prevent the Peloponnesians from withdrawing this time. Eurybiades' command would be surely tested if he ordered them to remain, for a few ships had already fled when the news of the capture of Athens reached them. Though how confident was Eurybiades in his own decision to remain fight at Salamis now? Themistocles would have seen the prospects of the Greeks resisting at Salamis quickly fading away as they watched on as the Persians formed into their lines of battle which seemed to cover the entire sea outside the straits. As the light of day started to slip away, the Persians peeled off from their formations in the line of battle to return to camp for their evening meal, while the Greeks' morale at this point was in no shape to sail out and engage. Now Xerxes had to wait and see if his show of force would return the desired result, but for good measure he would be ordering his army to begin marching in the direction of Corinth, towards the Peloponnese. They would of course be taking the coastal road in full view of the Greeks on Salamis, where the torch lights and sound of an army on the march could not be missed. Even before the Persian show of force outside the straits, there had been whispers between the commanders and would have most certainly been amongst the crews. Most of what was being discussed would have centred on Eurybiades' decision to fight and how foolish this was since their cities on the Peloponnese were Xerxes' next objective. Their thoughts centred around them being stranded on Salamis while the Persians marched into their lands, where their livelihoods and families still were. As the day had gone on, and especially after Xerxes' afternoon demonstration, these discussions would have become more noticeable and more open. 
the Athenians would have certainly seen that the chances of battle at Salamis were starting to slip away. Themistocles had always been wary of the Peloponnesians' conviction to fight thereafter the last council, and it would seem his fears were being realised. The opposition to Eurybiades' decision had reached a point where it was now openly discussed around the Greek camp, and a real risk of mutiny was at hand. Another council was called for the commanders to attend and air their misgivings. Once again, many of the same arguments were put forward. It looked as though the Greek fleet would divide, as the Peloponnesians were looking to sail off in defence of the Peloponnese, while those with interests north of Corinth, such as Athens, Aegina and Megara, would not sail but defend themselves where they were. We don't hear a final decision given by Eurybiades, but it seems likely if he wanted to avoid his command being undermined, he would have sided with his fellow Peloponnesians. It was probably around this time where it was clear Eurybiades was changing his decision that Themistocles slipped away from the council unnoticed. It was now clear to him that a united Greek fleet would not give battle at Salamis voluntarily. It was now time for that metis of Themistocles to make an appearance once again. Those same cunning and devious characteristics celebrated for the Homeric hero Odysseus. Themistocles returned to his ship and took Sykinus aside to take part in the ruse he had in mind. Sykinos was the household servant that took care of all of Themistocles' children, and a man he trusted very much. Sykinos was a slave and therefore not an Athenian, but for his devotion to Themistocles, he would eventually be made a wealthy man and become a Thespian citizen, thanks to his master. The plan involved Sykinos travelling by small boat at night to the Persian shore, to where he would seek an audience with the Persian commanders. Themistocles had armed him with what he was to tell the Persians, though it was unclear if he was aware if it was a ruse, or had Themistocles allowed Sykinos to believe that he was engaging in treachery. The historian Barry Strauss suggesting if Sykinos was led to believe his master was engaging in treachery, then when he was to reveal to Xerxes the message, the so much more believable it would be, especially if he was to be subjected to torture. The mission was a dangerous one. The crossing of the straits in the open water in a small ship at night was risky enough. But how would the Persians react to his appearance? Would he be killed at the shore? Would he be tortured? Perhaps a reason Themistocles might not want him to know it was all a ruse. Also, after he completed his mission, would the Persians allow him to return back to the Greeks? Themistocles watched Sycanus disappear into the night, and as he rode out into the straits, all he could do now was hope that his most trusted servant made it safely to the other side, and that Xerxes would take the bait. Sycanus indeed made it safely to the Persian shore, and not only that, he had presumably made the Persians he first encountered aware that he was carrying a message from a Greek commander for Xerxes. The Persians would have taken him to the highest ranking commander nearby, where Sykinos would have revealed his message that Herodotus records in his histories. I have been sent here by the commander of the Athenians without the knowledge of the other Hellenes, for he happens to favour the cause of the king and wants your side to prevail over that of the Hellenes. I have come to tell you that the Hellenes are utterly terrified and are planning to flee, and that you now have the opportunity to perform the most glorious of all feats if you don't stand by and watch them escape for they are in great disagreement with one another and will not stand up to you. Indeed, you will see them fighting a naval engagement against themselves, those favouring your side opposing those who do not. With his message delivered, he was then allowed to return to his ship to make his way back. It would seem likely that he would not have been turned loose until the message had been taken to Xerxes, who then would have ordered his release, probably a sign that he found the message pleasing. 
also showing good faith to a Greek commander willing to double-cross his fellow Greeks. It is worth pointing out that both Plutarch and Aeschylus represent Sykinos, or the messenger speaking directly to Xerxes, though one would think that the great king didn't make a habit of meeting with slaves. The message most likely arriving to him through one of his subordinate commanders, as Herodotus suggests. As we have seen, Xerxes wanted to fight. He didn't want the Greeks to slip away as they had done at Artemisium. This news would have played on his fears that it would happen again, so he needed to act quickly. Secondly, the message sent by Themistocles was telling him what he wanted to hear, as well as confirming reports that would have been making their way back to him about the state of affairs on Salamis. So, on the face of it, with little time for decision-making, the message would have seemed credible. Greek leaders had been submitting to him all throughout the campaign, so this wasn't out of the ordinary. In fact, he was probably expecting it after his show of force the previous afternoon. Wanting to capitalise on the information, Xerxes now ordered the fleet to head back out to block the straits. Most of the crews would have only just finished settling back into camp from their afternoon mission. It seems that there would have been no rest for them that night. It's also worth pointing out that some historians question the reality of Sykinos' mission, although, as we have seen, three ancient sources report it, one of who was at the battle himself. It may be possible that a blocking Greek fleet had begun with Xerxes' show of force. As we have seen, it was almost certain that Xerxes was aware of the Greek conditions on Salamis and had taken measures already. In the cloak of darkness, the contingents that made up the Persian fleet began moving into position to prevent the Greeks from fleeing. Part of the plan involved occupying an islet just south of the Straits and halfway between the coast of Attica and Salamis. This islet was seen to be vital for the coming battle as it lay where the fight was expected to take place. Whoever occupied it with their troops would be able to rescue and recover their own forces, while also dispatching any enemy that sought to find refuge there. Any stricken ships or men overboard would be seeking the closest dry land. As for the positions the Persians took up, it isn't entirely clear how they blocked the Greek positions. Some sources, such as Herodotus, talk of the opening of the straits being blocked, while there was also talk from Diodorus of the Persians infiltrating into the straits and trying to catch any fleeing Greek ships. This would have been a very risky manoeuvre, especially since the night was supposed to have been overcast with very little moon or starlight to help guide them. Also, if the Persians wanted to completely cut off the Greeks, force would need to be sent around Salamis to the north to block the exit. There may be something in Herodotus' account suggesting this may have taken place when he has the Corinthians apparently abandoning the battle, which we will see in a bit. But there may have been a good reason to leave the main line. Diodorus talks about the Egyptians being sent on this task, but he is also the only source who has them undertaking this mission. It would seem that the Greeks had now been trapped within the Straits, with the southern and potentially the northern exits blocked. It's hard to know if they sailed into the Straits at night, or perhaps most likely moved in at first light. We hear of the Phoenician contingent being drawn up on the Persian right, the position of honour and who were considered the best formation of the Persian fleet. On the Persian left were the Ionian Greeks, but after that all of the other contingents were somewhere between the two. In all, the Persian battle line was arranged in three lines stretching from the Attic coast to Salamis. Themistocles during the early hours would now learn of the bait he had sent out being taken and acted on. This extremely welcome news would come from one of his fiercest political opponents from his past. Aristides had been ostracised in 484 BC, four years earlier when the tensions between the two were at their height. With the news of the Persian invasion, all exiles were allowed to return to Athens in the face of the crisis. Aristides had sailed from the island of Aegina, 
south of Salamis, to be reunited with his fellow Athenians. It had been four years since the two rivals had seen each other, but Aristides, when landing at Salamis, sought to speak with Themistocles right away. While the Persians had been putting back out to sea and encircling the Greeks, the arguments for abandoning the Salamis had continued unaware of the Persian movements. Aristides caught up with Themistocles, and aware of the situation of the Greeks on Salamis, he said, First, let me tell you that the Peloponnesians may talk as much or as little as they please about withdrawing from Salamis. It will make not the least difference. What I tell you, I have seen with my own eyes. They cannot now get out of here, however much to the Corinthians or Eurybiades himself may wish to do so, because our fleet is surrounded. So go and tell them that. Themistocles would have been delighted with the news brought by his long-time rival. Though it seemed that the Peloponnesians were at a point where whatever argument Themistocles brought forward again would not be listened to. He arranged for Aristides to present what he had witnessed to them himself. Perhaps they would take more notice. It appears at this stage, one of the fiercest rivalries in Athens was put on hold while a common enemy was in possession of their beloved city. Both men approached where the councils had been taking place. It seems meetings had been occurring all throughout the night. Aristides addressed the commanders, telling them what he had witnessed on his journey to Salamis, and how difficult it was to slip through the blockade. He advised that the only option open to the Greeks at this point was to engage the Persians at sea in battle. While his case was put forward, the commanders present broke out, arguing against his advice, and disbelieving what he had seen. Maybe it was because Aristides was also an Athenian, so of course he would say whatever he could to stop the Peloponnesians from leaving. Plus it was the news that they did not want to hear now that their desire to sail to the Peloponnese was greater than ever. Aristides' appearance had not changed the Peloponnesians' mind, but as the debates continued, another ship had come ashore at Salamis. This time it was a defector from the Persian fleet. The ship was from the island of Tenos in the Aegean. Once ashore, they had confirmed the report that Aristides had given, as they would have been a part of the manoeuvres to get into position before defecting. This report given by the outsiders, who were importantly not Athenian, now started to sway the Peloponnesians, and they would have now begun to realise that the only course of action open to them was to fight. The island of Tenos would be recognised along with the other Greeks who helped defend Greece from the Persians, the name of the island appearing on a tripod dedicated to Delphi after the war. With that, the Greeks were now united in their cause. They had to be, as no other option was open to them now. Themistocles may have had something to do with the closing off of any other options by seeing to engaging in traitorous ways, behind everyone's backs. These were desperate times, though, which called for desperate measures. The last hours of darkness on Salamis would have been filled with much activity as the Greeks prepared their crews and ships, not to depart on a voyage, but to now engage in battle against the Persians. We hear of Themistocles giving a speech to the men, just before putting out into the strait. Unfortunately, there is no record of what he was supposed to have said to inspire the men. In attendance would have most likely been the commanders of all the different ships and possibly the fighting men aboard the ships. Surely the crews manning the oars and other auxiliary crew would have already taken up their places aboard the ships. Once the Mystocles' speech was finished, the men headed to their ships and prepared to give battle. As the Greek ships began forming up along the coast of Salamis, dawn had broken on the 25th of September, 480 BC, the day that would decide their fate. Heading out into the line of battle, the Athenians were on the Greek left, which saw them facing the strongest element of the Persian fleet, that of the Phoenicians. The Spartans, who only made up a small part of the fleet, were stationed on the right wing, the place of honour, since they commanded the fleet. 
opposite them would be the Ionian Greek contingent, who had not acted on Themistocles' message at Artemisium, and were still part of the Persian fleet. All of the other Greek contingents were positioned between the Athenians and Spartans, except for the Corinthians. Herodotus reports a story that he says the Athenians recount. The Corinthians had set sail leaving the rest of the Greeks at Salamis to fight. Though once learning of the Greeks getting the upper hand, they returned as the battle was finishing up. We need to keep in mind that when Herodotus was gathering his information, it was in the time where relations between Athens and Corinth were less amicable. We have already seen how the Corinthian commander is presented as being the main opposition to staying and fighting at Salamis. Other evidence indicates that Corinth did in fact fight at Salamis. They were listed on the memorials at Olympia and Delphi, in third place after Athens and Sparta. Some of the dead had also been buried at Salamis, and Corinth had been allowed by Athens, who controlled Salamis, to set up an epigram on their graves. If they had acted as traitors, one would think that they would not be honoured in these ways. It has also been suggested by Barry Strauss that they may have been acting as a decoy to attempt to draw the Persians into the straits and give the impression that the Greeks were fleeing. Also, if the Egyptians had been sent to block the other end of the straits, they may have been sailing out to prevent them from attacking the Greek rear. It would appear later political developments were influencing how history was being retold. There may be some truth to the Corinthians sailing away, but the motivations were changed for slanderous purposes. The details of the actual battle that took place have come to us with many interpretations by ancient and modern historians, trying to present a clear narrative of what was taking place and when during the battle becomes very difficult. The chaos of the battle, as well as no single person being in a position to record developments as they occurred throughout the line, would mean that many individual counts would need to be relied upon to try and stitch together how the battle unfolded. One of these accounts is the only written account surviving from someone who fought at the battle. The account is not what we would call a historical account, as it was written as a play. Aeschylus was a playwright, and eight years after the battle he wrote a play called The Persians, which focused on the defeat of the Persians at Salamis, told through Xerxes' mother back at the Persian court. We need to keep in mind that poetic license was probably at work, with the main theme of the play being that of hubris. But with that said, let's head back to the Straits, where I'll try and use the available sources to recount what unfolded. As dawn came on, the Greeks were moving out into their positions. The Persians began entering the straits. Their ranks became disorganised, with the sheer number of ships entering a much narrower body of water. While moving in, they would have heard a very unexpected sound. The Greeks were singing their paean, a song of triumph, which was common before going into battle. The quote at the beginning of the episode is what Aeschylus has the Greeks singing. For the crews within the Persian fleet, this would have been very unsettling, since they had been told by their commanders that they would be chasing down disorganised fleeing Greeks. What they were hearing as they entered their positions within the straits would have contradicted this message. It seemed the Greeks were united and ready for a fight. Persians opposite the Greek positions now would have been lined up in many ranks with their shore at their back. Up on the high ground behind the Phoenician position, a spot had been prepared for Xerxes. He would watch the battle from his vantage point with scribes by his side ready to take down the names of commanders who excelled themselves, or those showing cowardice and need of punishment. We hear that the Persians came on to the Greeks, and the Greeks, if through hesitation, redressing their ranks or an attempt to make sure that the Persians could not get behind them, they started backing water, rowing in reverse, the sterns of their ships up on the coastline. Whatever the reason, they would not continue in this direction for long, 
as the Greeks would be the first to draw blood. Both the contingents from Athens and Aegina would claim to have begun proceedings. Among the Athenian vessels, one had picked out a Persian ship and rushed forward ramming it. Unable to free themselves from their victim, other Athenian ships came forward to assist. This was said to be the opening action that then saw the general action begin. If this was or wasn't, we aren't going to know for sure, and neither would have the men there, as they would have been unaware of what was taking place further down the line. With the battle now joined, things became very hazy, as one could imagine in the chaos. On both sides, the captains of the ships would be seeking out enemy vessels to direct their large bronze ram at on the front of their ships. Crashing this through the side of a trireme would see many of the crew of the enemy killed or wounded. It was also likely that the ship would sink if the ramming ship was able to backwater and free themselves from the damaged ship. Otherwise, the soldiers aboard the triremes would become involved in a battle over the fouled ships as they attempted to board one another. Another tactic was to come up alongside an enemy ship and at the last second have the rowers on the sides of the enemy pull up their oars in clear of the ship. As they came alongside the ship, they would shear off the enemy's oars, which would see their ship become immobile and be a sitting duck to be rammed or boarded. As more and more ships were engaging, chaos now started to take over. We hear of the Greek line maintaining order while the Persians became disorganised. What probably led to this was that their great number of ships was now starting to inhibit their movement. In such a restricted body of water, only a third of the fleet could initially engage the Greeks. Though under the watchful eye of Xerxes, many were out to prove themselves, and desperate to get into action. Many of the Persian ships were becoming fouled on one another, as the second and third lines came forward. There was becoming less and less room for manoeuvre, as the Persian lines tried to engage, while those trying to retreat had nowhere to go, and became obstacles to those coming on at the Greeks. We also hear of one of Xerxes' brothers being killed in the fighting early on. He was one of the admirals in command of the Carians and Ionians. He was supposed to have been killed by an Athenian ship during a boarding attempt. If this was the case, the lines must have become confused and mixed even at this early stage. The Ionians and Carians were lined up on the flank facing the Spartans, on the other end of the line of battle from the Athenians. His death could have added to some panic and confusion to those ships around, though it is hard to imagine how effective an overall commander would be once battle was joined. During the battle, Herodotus once again talks about Artemisia that queen of his hometown of Halicarnassus. When the Persian lines became disorganised, her ship was being pursued by an Athenian ship. Due to the limited space to manoeuvre, she had nowhere to go, as her path was probably blocked by friendly ships. Whether by accident or on purpose, her ship rammed another from the Persian fleet. The Athenian ship seeing this broke off his chase assuming hers to have either been a Greek ship or a Persian deserter. If the Athenian ship had known the ship he was chasing was commanded by Artemisia, he probably would have continued after her. The Greeks presented that a woman would fight against them and a bounty had been placed on her for anyone who could capture her alive. Up on the coastline overlooking the straits, Xerxes witnessed this action, though had thought Artemisia had in fact rammed a Greek vessel. Seeing her exploits and the rest of his fleet becoming entangled and falling back, he is meant to have said, My men have turned into women, my women into men. We hear that the Persians had fought extremely hard and distinguished themselves more so than they had at Artemisium. Though, by this stage, Xerxes seeing the disorder of his fleet was in no mood for excuses. Some Phoenician commanders had ended up back on the shore from either retreating or escaping after their ships were rammed. They were brought to Xerxes and tried to pass off their failure due to Ionian treachery during the battle, 
Xerxes, though, had just witnessed or been told of some heroic actions carried out by some Ionian contingents. He became irate at the Phoenician commanders for accusing the Ionians of being cowards and engaging in treachery, when it was the Ionians sinking enemy ships while they stood on dry land no longer in the fight. This then caused Xerxes to order the execution of the commanders before him. More and more, the Persian fleet were becoming put out of action by the Greeks, or fouling one another. Many contingents had been trying to withdraw from the battle, with the Phoenician flank all but defeated. The Greek left could begin to move on the Ionians, who seemed to be putting up the strongest fight. With more Greek ships now coming against the Persian left, it was only a matter of time before they too looked to withdraw. Now after many hours of fighting, the majority of the fleet was attempting to fall back to Phaleron. The crews had been manning their positions all the previous night and had spent hours in battle. Exhaustion had taken its toll. It wasn't over for the retreating contingents though, as the straits had become bottlenecked, clogged with many ships retreating and those who had been in the open waters now trying to come in and prove themselves. Those retreating were still being preyed upon. We hear that at the exit of the straits, the contingent from Aegina ambushed ships that were attempting to leave. The rest of the Greek fleet also bore down on the tangled Persian ships in the opening of the straits, causing even more chaos and suffering. Meanwhile, with the straits now mostly clear of active Persian ships, Aristides arranged a force to set out and clear the islet of the Persian troops that had been deployed there earlier. Only recently having come out of exile, it seemed Aristides had not commanded a trireme, which would have been expected of someone of his standing in the Athenian society. He had gathered a force in Salamis and embarked on some ships to land on the islet. The Persians had been waiting to rescue or finish off any men going ashore depending on the side they fought. Now though, they were stranded. The Greeks were now mostly in control of the straits. Once on the islet, Aristides and his men made short work of the Persian station there, slaughtering all they came across. It was now clear that the Persians had been defeated in this engagement, and were in full retreat, making their way back to their base at Phaleron Bay. The Greeks did not pursue them out into the open waters, but tired and exhausted themselves, made their way back to Salamis. It wasn't clear yet that the Persians were finished as a naval force. At Artemisium, there had been three days of engagements, though the battle at Salamis was on a much larger scale than what had occurred there. The Greeks landed back on Salamis and began repairing and preparing their ships in case the Persians were to regroup and enter the straits again. Though a renewed attack would never eventuate. The Persians are thought to have lost up to half their fleet at Salamis, some 300 ships, while the Athenians are reported to have lost 40. It's not known for certain what the losses were for each side, but a year later the Persian force would number 300 ships. If we accept the Persian force as being somewhere around 600 ships at Salamis, then these losses seem plausible. The 40 losses attributed to the Greeks comes from Diodorus, but again he was writing some 600 years after the battle, and it isn't clear what sources he was working from. Similarly, how many ships that were out of action due to damage is unknown, as well as the number of men killed. It seems almost certain, with the number of ships lost, that the Persians would have suffered far more men killed. Also, Herodotus adds that the Persians could not swim, which saw their casualties mount. Back at the side of each other's bays would have been a scene of chaos. Exhausted crews would be putting back at shore, but their jobs were not over yet. They would be setting out once again to retrieve damaged ships, and any survivors clinging to the wreckage. Back on shore, men would be contending with the repair of ships and the training of the wounded, of whom there would have been plenty of. It would also be important to recover the dead, especially for the Greeks. The notion of being lost at sea 
and never recovered to be buried would have terrified the men before setting out for battle. The survivors would have most likely spent the time trying to recover all the Greek bodies that they could find, so as to ensure they would receive a proper burial. The 25th of September, 480 BC, would be the end of the Battle of Salamis, with the Greeks winning themselves a victory that they would not have envisaged for some 24 hours earlier, let alone the battle itself being fought. Although a Greek victory, it wasn't the end of the war. The Persians still controlled Attica. They still had their land army, which had not been defeated yet, while also still having some 300 ships in their service. It seems that they were far from being a spent force. Both sides had to decide what to do. The Greeks had not ventured out into the open waters, but opted to regroup and prepare for another attack. With no renewed naval offensive, the Greeks would need to decide what their next course of action would be. Xerxes, having witnessed the defeat of his fleet before his very eyes, would probably not have been confident at sending them against the Greeks again. He now had to decide how the campaign would continue. He still had a formidable land force. Though the Persians were far from home, their supply lines stretched and the campaigning season was coming to a close. Both sides had much to consider and the war would continue to drag on to 479 BC. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. They go a long way to supporting the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe to castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook and Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time where we'll be taking another short break from our narrative, this time to look at the follow-up of the movie 300. So I hope to see you for episode 25, 300, Rise of an Empire Against the Sources.